welcome back to the Conscious Contact Podcast. You do not need to adjust your screen. There will be no actual video footage from this episode. Um, I'm going to be talking about losing someone that was close to me in my 12-step program, um, and I didn't want my fresh feelings on that and the potential for me to get emotional outwardly affect me making this episode. So I figured rather than me bring my own selfishness and self-centeredness about the way that I look into this, I can ignore that completely and um, get this out for you all because she shared so many amazing insights with me and I have so many notes in my book from her. Um, And I'm going to do my best to not identify her uh, too much um, because I am sharing about the fact that I knew her through my program of recovery and anonymity is only hers to give. Um, and she did not give me that before she passed. So I'm not going to, um, use that just out of respect for her and the traditions of my recovery program. So if you are not a member of this particular 12 step program, some of this might sound really foreign to you, but I'm going to do my best to, not um, over explain the quotes that I'm giving, not over explain the little snippets of readings from this book that I'm going to give, and really just kind of get to the heart of what it made me think or feel or how it related to me and what I think um, I would like to personally carry forward from it and from her. So the first one here is out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that would one day turn in its flight like a boomerang and cut me, but cut me to ribbons. Um, I love this line from her, you know, that that weapon that I forged that eventually would use against myself was my selfishness, self-centeredness and my ego, all those things that I thought were protecting me from the world ended up really being what, you know, gave me my downfall and what what started to harm me in the end and made it so that I wasn't able to ever be happy. And it's such such a catch-22 and it's such a big part of my recovery that, you know, I am the problem. Um, and the things that I do, whether they're incorrect coping mechanisms that at the time seem like they're really good and they're protecting me and, you know, this, that, or the other, eventually they will hurt me uh, in one way or the other, or they'll hurt someone near to me because I'm still, you know, using a coping mechanism that has no good effect and it is negatively harming them because I'm treating them as if they're the person that hurt me. And that's not okay. I I think that if I can continue to realize that I am the problem, um, I can also be the solution. And this woman was, you know, really, really big on that. Um, one time she printed out these little stickers for everyone. And this just goes to show you how how extremely thoughtful um, and considerate this woman was. And uh, she printed out stickers for everyone to put on their mirror because this is something that she did when she was first in recovery. Um, and she had about, I think she had 40 years of sobriety when she passed, which is absolutely amazing. And um, it said, you are looking at the problem. So every time that I'm standing in the mirror, which I don't know about you, but for me, I have a lot of my aha moments in the bathroom, whether I'm brushing my teeth or waiting for my hair to dry or, you know, any of those tedious tasks that just give you this kind of white noise to just be in your head. I absolutely love 
you know, remembering that and saying, you know, any issue that I have today, either I am the problem and I can be the solution, or if it is completely out of my hands and I've not put my foot in it, I need to give it over to God because there's nothing I can do to change it. And um, I, I credit her a lot with a lot of the changes that I got to see from that. And you'll also hear, hear quite a few page turns uh, potentially in this episode. I've tried to adjust the audio for that, but just so that you are aware, um, we can't use willpower against alcohol. We must use won't power. I think that that is such a common misconception from people that may have not struggled with addiction or alcoholism or uh, having moments where you are completely unable to either start or stop a thing. I think I've talked to some friends that have ADHD and it's it's a similar feeling. You feel like a failure because you just you just think based on, you know, what society tells you, well, if you would just try harder, then you could or you couldn't, you know, depending on the situation. And that's such a fallacy for alcoholism and addiction. It is a disease and it is a, you know, physical, mental, chemical problem. Um, and it's not a matter of willpower. It really is something where you have to have outside help and for, you know, to each their own for their recovery. For me, it's a 12-step program, therapy, higher power, all of that stuff, mentors. Um, and for other people, it might just be therapy. But having outside help, outside of ourselves, because this is not something that we can change on our own. I mean, if it was, then I definitely wouldn't be in a 12-step program, you know, like I don't think anyone wants to end up there. And that was not something that I elected to do, but it was the only option left for me after I'd kind of shown myself that there was physically and mentally nothing I could do to stop. I I really appreciate that thought because I, when I was first new in the program, I, I definitely feel like I just didn't have enough strength or fortitude or maybe if I just tried harder next time, you know, whatever, it would be better. And I feel kind of lucky that I did do that before I came into the program and still continued to fail and drink again um, because it is not up to me personally. It is not a moral failure. It is not, you know, this taboo thing. It's something that is a disease and there is help out there, which is the biggest gift in the world. I always thought about what alcohol could do for me, not what it did to me. I mean, damn, I, <laughs> I think anyone that has struggled with alcoholism or addiction can definitely uh, understand that. I definitely had no thoughts whatsoever. Like when I was taking the first drink, all of those other consequences of when I had drank before went out the window. I never thought about how I was going to feel physically. I never thought about, you know, the actions that I was going to take because it ended the same every time. It wasn't like every time I drank, it was different. I mean, it was pretty clear what was going to happen. But that craving, that physical and mental obsession was so great that it just got to the point where I, those thoughts did not cross my mind. The only thing that crossed my mind was this is the way I know how to feel better quickly. And I didn't have any other tools. I had nothing else to do other than that. It was like medicine and I could not imagine life with or without it. And it, it's so interesting to look back on that now after, you know, the the sober time that I've had. It's not a thought in my mind anymore. Like alcohol is not an option. It doesn't exist. I don't crave it. I don't think about it. It's not an aversion. I, I don't have to, you know, will myself not to pay attention to it or to not drink. I mean, it just isn't. And I, I, it's an absolute 
miracle and it's definitely not something that I ever thought could happen. And I hope that that's hope out there if anyone's listening to this and you do have that mental obsession and when you start, you can't stop. Um, I don't feel that way anymore. And it, it is crazy. This, this program has changed my life. The women that I've met in this program have changed my life. And I hope that by sharing a little bit of what this one woman said, um, you can start to, to get a little bit of that yourself. If you are someone that, you know, feels similarly. Mm, Okay. So there's this story in this one chapter. Um, and it's talking about this man who is an alcoholic and the first part of the description is an exceptional man. He remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Uh, she wanted me to make a note here. Well, all of us it wasn't just to me; it was to the whole group. But what about his personal life? Um, this this book was written by alcoholics. It was not written by an outside source, and they are very intentional in the way that they phrase these stories and the words that they use, and it. it it's told from the perspective of the person that's experiencing it or or maybe what they wanted other people to see. And, you know, he was a su- successful and happy business person um, because he was dry. It doesn't mean he was sober. He wasn't working a program. He was just basically white knuckling it and not drinking because uh, he told himself, you know, he had a little bit of problems with alcohol when he first started his career. And he said, you know what? I can't drink until I retire. And she wanted to point out that while he you know, was successful and happy in business, there is no mention made of his personal life. Um, So we're kind of led to believe in the in the reading between the lines there that, yeah, maybe he became a workaholic. Um, He channeled all that energy that you would use to to seek and think about alcohol into his work and his personal life probably suffered uh, from personal experience of having dry time before coming into working a program, which means a period of time where I did not drink, but did not have another tool to use to to feel better um it's basically just still acting like an alcoholic but not drinking which is was so much worse i put everything that i had into my my career at the time and became a workaholic and overexerted myself in that area and then every part of my life other than that suffered greatly and i think it's it, it was important for me to break that delusion that everything was fine just because i didn't get fired from my job you know what i mean there's plenty of other things that were absolutely horrendous. And I just kind of deluded myself into thinking that everything was fine. One of my favorite quotes from her, and I I put this in my planner um, that I made for people that are looking for support in their recovery. It's always linked below in the in the show notes. As long as I only worry about today, tomorrow will take care of itself. And I think that that's so important for me as an anxious person, as an alcoholic who likes to, you know, plan everything to a T and, you know, really take control of every single thing. And I don't like it when my plans get, you know, (laughs) changed at all, no matter how insignificant or for the better, you know, they might change for the better. It doesn't matter to me. I don't like change. (laughs) I don't like change at all. And I am much better than I used to be, but I do need this reminder a lot. I need to know that as long as I stay in the moment and I focus on what I can do right now, what I can change today or not change and get out of the way of, then tomorrow will come. You know, if I'm I'm lucky to live another day, tomorrow will come. And there's nothing that I can do or not do to prevent or guarantee that. And that helps to humble me and know that, you know, like I'm not the most powerful person in the world. I am not, you know, above any misfortune or inconvenience or whatever. 
and I just have to deal with life as it comes. Um, and that's all I can do. There is, <laughs> there is another little story in here. Again, if you're familiar with the program, you'll know the whole, whole story and I won't read the whole thing. Um, uh, in general, um, it's a gentleman who had a issue with alcohol, realized it, said that he wasn't going to drink. And then he did again because he did not have another tool to use. He was not working a program. So it goes, yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. <laughs> and this woman would always say, where was he on Monday? <laughs> and I think that that is, well, I'll just speak for myself. That's par for the course for me. Um, as an alcoholic, I would always downplay what the issues were. I would leave out details and just jump into what was, you know, bugging me at the moment and make it, frame it so that it looked like I was the victim. And again, this, this book was written by alcoholics that had gotten sober and they are very intentional about what they write in this book. And all it says is that this person came to work on Tuesday morning. Where was he on Monday? You know, we, we are listening to how he got drunk again after swearing off, you know, kind of par, again, par for the course for alcoholics and he missed work on Monday, came to work Tuesday and was irritated. Um, which is such, you know, uh, an alcoholic mindset. I did this quite a bit. Um, and, you know, it, it reminds me that I cannot escape reality, no matter how much I want to downplay or lie or, you know, tell a, a cleaned up version of something. Life is what it is. And I need to include the full story, even just to myself, because if I don't, it's very easy for me to blame other people. And I, I lose sight of what my part to play in that was. Another little quote um, here is talking about things that um, keep people out of the program, you know, thinking that alcoholics are, you know, the person under the bridge with the brown paper bag that has no job, that's homeless, that's, um, you know, that is their idea of an alcoholic. And that doesn't have to be the case. Like I could get there if I wanted to, it just hasn't happened yet. And there's a lot of yets for me. I had a bottom, but I definitely did not lose everything, although I was on the precipice of losing everything. I think that it's really important for me to remember that. And there was a little um, tool that she would say is, you know, yet stands for you're eligible to. And, you know, I, if I hear someone speak at a meeting, I'm like, oh, that didn't happen to me yet. Um. I, or I didn't have that consequence or I didn't lose what she lost. And I, I compared myself a lot in the beginning to people that would talk about, you know, getting DUIs and going to jail or losing their kids or killing someone or, you know, in any of these horrible consequences that we get from this disease. And I would say, you know, well, I wasn't, wasn't that bad. I didn't have that happen to me. And I would share that with people and they were like, well, it just didn't happen to you yet. And I can definitely see that now looking back, like I should have gotten, you know, hundreds of DUIs. I should have gone to jail multiple times for my behavior. I I was very, very lucky. And if I feel like, oh, well, I wasn't that bad because that didn't happen to me. If I go back out, it could, you know, and for me, most likely it would. So I, I, I have to keep that in the forefront of my mind that just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that I need it to happen. You know, like I'm, I'm good staying where I'm at. Another one of those is denial. Denial stands for don't even know it's a lie. And when I was in the throes of my alcoholism, I mean, I I really thought that a lot of the lies that were coming out of my mouth were reality. 
I had, you know, deluded myself so much into, you know, living a life that only served me and only served the purpose of allowing me to continue to drink. And I thought a lot of the stuff that came out of my mouth was the truth, you know, like in my opinion or in my reality it was, but I was living so far outside of reality and I I have to, you know, live in a way now that I can prevent that as much as possible and, and be able to see what's really going on. And that means, you know, sharing it with other people around me so they can call my bullshit and they can say, no, that's actually, that's not what I heard at all. And, you know, sharing stuff with Luke, he'll tell me all the time, he's like, why did you read that text or that email with that attitude when you read it to me. And I was like, well, that's how I heard it. And he's like, they they didn't say anything to you. You know, that wasn't a recording. Um, I put a lot of that into it myself because that is how I envision it in my head. That's my reality. And it's me lying to myself. You know, it's giving me an excuse to either feel angry or jilted or, you know, whatever. And I, I need to place myself in a position where I can see that. Um, and again, a lot of that is just continuing to share it with others. There is a part in this book, um, and she would always say, because it's called the A, B, and Cs of alcoholism. Um, if not convinced by A, B, C, which means if you don't identify or you don't think that A, B, and C apply to you, um, you need to reread this book or throw the book away. Um, and that I believe uh, she was referring to what this, the first draft of this chapter actually said. Um, and I think that that's so important because, again, like it was written by alcoholics who had gotten sober. And that was a feat because this book was written in the 30s um, and AA started in the early 30s. It was the only option for people other than jail or the insane asylum at the time. And, you know, it was the only thing that had worked since, the, you know, the conception of alcohol for people. And um, I I was really stubborn when I came into this program. I, I needed truth like this. I needed honesty. And I think a lot of the people that had gotten sober knew that, too, because they had felt the same way. Um, and I love that harshness. harshness. And this woman was definitely known uh, to some for being harsh, but I, I think more so it was just she wasn't afraid to tell people hard truths and not in an unloving or an unkind way. She was deadly serious about it because she knew that alcoholism was a deadly disease and that either we get sober or we die. I mean, and and that is the long and the short of it. We either get sober or we die from alcoholism and I can't think of a worse option than that, you know, um, living how I was and knowing how I felt living the rest of my life in that way. I don't, I don't think I could have imagined that. And, um, I really appreciate all of the hard truths that she shared with me when I first got into the program and, and how much love I could see from that, um, from, from her to the people that she was saying this stuff to and how much she did genuinely care for all of us, um, it was really special, and I feel really lucky to have known her. Um, the third step in our program of recovery um, is really important. It's something that I have to do every day. And uh, she said the third step is me hiring God as my babysitter. Um, <laughs> and I love that because it reminds me that, you know, I am not capable of running my own life. I've had tried it for, you know, 20 seven years at that point in time, and I had failed miserably. Um, I 
should not have been trusted <laughs> with my own life, my own decisions, you know, all that stuff. And so what do you do when, you know, <laughs> that situation occurs? Um, it's normally in the context of a child who can't care for themselves yet. So you hire a babysitter if you can't be with them or can't care for them properly. And I definitely needed that. I needed someone else to run my life because I was running it into the ground. Um, and that was, that was it. I mean, there was no way out for me. I tried everything else. Um, and I, I love, again, like the, the seriousness of this quote, but the lightheartedness of it as well, you know, being able to look at this with as much humor as you can. I know if you're early in sobriety, it's not going to feel very funny, but looking back now, you know, like I, I needed a babysitter. <laughs> I really did. Every time that I went out and drank, I needed a babysitter. After I got sober, I needed a babysitter. And I, I think that's really cool that we get to have a higher power who we trust to run our life and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, I really uh, am that type of person. I'm always worrying about what could happen um, from you know, experiences in my childhood with things being really good and then something bad always happening when I got really happy. I would, I was always waiting for that. Um, we call that waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I was scared of being happy. You know, like every time that I got happy after getting sober, I was kind of worried, you know, like what's going to happen next. And that led me to not really being able to enjoy everything fully. And, you know, I still struggle with that a little bit. It's something that I'm you know, constantly trying to work on and let go of a little bit more. And I'm so glad I got reminded of this quote. Um, she said, I used to be worried about the other shoe dropping. And then someone told me not to worry and tie the shoes on tighter instead. And I love that. You know, anytime that I have those feelings of being uncomfortable or not really knowing what's going to happen or I'm, you know, on the precipice and there's a lot of stuff that I can't really control my go-to needs to be picking up this program and working it and sharing this with other people because there is nothing that I can do about it. Whatever is going to happen will happen. There's not much I can do to change it other than my mindset. You know what I mean? Either what happens can be beneficial to me, no matter if it's good or bad, or whatever happens can affect me greatly and it can cause me to ruin the lives of everyone around me. And I get the choice to not do that anymore. I get the choice to say, no, that's not how I want to feel about this. Let me lean into something else instead. That kind of bleeds into this <laughs> this next quote because I had a lot of pushback originally because I was like, you know, well, what if what God wants to happen isn't what I want to happen? And that's kind of the point. <laughs> um, and I was asked, you know, well, how is you making what you want to happen happen working out for you. It wasn't working out very well, if I'm being honest. Um, I was getting what I wanted and it was not treating me very well. Um, I did not feel very good. I was hurting everyone around me. So I was like, yeah, yeah, you're kind of right. Maybe I should let whatever, you know, the universe, God wants to happen, happen. And she said, God is not interested in what I want, only what I need. And I think that's a big distinction to make because I was, you know, atheist agnostic when I came into the program and it was really hard for me to start to understand prayer, start to understand giving my will up to this thing that I had no conception of. And, you know, I was like, well, what if something bad happens, <laughs> you know? And they said, well, you know, cross that bridge when you come to it. How about you stop worrying about it 
And how about you think about what you've been given today that is what you need to survive on? And, you know, being grateful for the tiny things, being grateful for a warm home um, that isn't, you know, have a bunch of holes in the roof and it's raining on me and I have food, I have people that care for me, I have, you know, peace and serenity. Like, why don't I focus on that instead of not getting what I want? How, how important is what I want also in comparison to what I need? And, and how about I let go a little bit of what I want? And maybe if I don't get what I want, that means someone else gets what they need. And that was a big revelation for me too. Like I'm not the biggest, most important thing. And like things might happen to, to benefit someone else, you know, like what a, (laughs) what a shocker. Um, just because I don't get what I want doesn't mean that I'm not getting what I need. Uh, there is, um, a little paragraph in a certain chapter and it talks about alcohol is no longer a problem. And this woman would always say, really? Because that was just incomprehensible to her. She thought alcohol was the problem and it was always going to be the problem and that this program was just going to teach her how to white knuckle it for the rest of her life. And and she came to that realization that, you know, at one point, you know, early in her sobriety, she suddenly realized that alcohol was no longer a problem for her. She could not drink and was okay with that and didn't obsess over it and could go more than 24 hours without thinking about it. And then slowly and slowly it became longer and longer. And I just think what a huge promise that is for someone that comes into the program. Well, I mean, I came in hungover with my life falling down around me. This was a last ditch effort. And I was like, these people are a cult. This is going to be terrible, you know? And for someone to say to me, you know, you don't ever have to feel this way again, which is a quote from another wonderful woman in the program. Um, I was like, okay, you know, Um, and then I would hear this woman say, you know, alcohol is no longer the problem. I am the problem. It that shift that happens when I'm working this program is just absolutely monumental and completely changed my life. Again, you know, she's, she's pretty blunt. Um, And if if you can't tell, if you haven't listened to any other episodes of mine, um, listening to my last episode on triggers, you're going to be able to hear a lot of this kind of a thought process in there. Um, and it does come from her quite a bit. You know, she was talking about excuses versus reasons. Um, people that are talking about having excuses to not work the program or not want to do a certain step, you know, X, Y, or Z. She said, there are no reasons to not do it. So what's the excuse? Um, I definitely had a lot of these at the beginning, you know, I thought, well, someone was like, oh, you need to go to more meetings. I'm like, you know, my, I've got stuff to do, or, you know, like I need to live my life. And, you know, why should I make AA the most important thing in the world in my life? And they're like, well, you may drink in the most important thing in your life. And it caused you to make all the other important things not important. And that got me where I was. And, you know, it's, it is that thing. Like, even if I do have a valid excuse for something. Say I see a text from from someone that I should be messaging back, but I forget about it till the end of the day, or I say I'm going to call someone and I forget and I don't do it till the next day, or I say I'm going to do a four-step on someone and I keep putting it off. Whether I have an excuse or not, whether that excuse is valid or not, there's a reason behind it. And I need to look at that. I need to find out why 
I am making an excuse for something because, you know, there's a there's room for growth in that. There's there's a pattern of behavior in that that I can stop should I want. You know, if I focus on it and I'm able to work the program on it, then I get to have freedom from that. And I, I think that that's a, a huge skill that I definitely did not have um, prior to coming into here. And I want to close with her favorite paragraph from the book. Um, it sums up our program all in one. Um, and she read this at the end of pretty much every one of our meetings that she was at. She would take this reading from the chairperson and, and intentionally choose to read it. And I love that. I, I think that her devotion to this program, her devotion to the fellowship, her showing up and being an example for, for everyone else just by sharing her story and sharing what she had been through and the struggles that she went through so that hopefully we didn't have to have them um, is just such a gift. And I think that this paragraph will uh, perfectly end this episode as well. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But you obviously cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Um, and she would always point out that trudge means to walk with purpose. Um, it does not mean this weary, dreary slog um, that trudge can kind of bring to mind. It means to walk with purpose. And she did. Um, she shared that with all of us. She gave freely of what she found in this program and asked for us to join her um, on this walk. And she will continue to live on. I know in the memories and the words and the books of so, so many people. Um, and she's just had such a profound impact on me and became like, you know, a third grandmother to me. And um, I think it's important for me for me and me processing this to, to make this episode, but also to hopefully share it with everyone that's listening so that she can, you know, impart words of wisdom, uh, to that many more <laughs> human beings. And I hope that you got something out of this. I, I hope that you can take one of her quotes and, and it help you or help you to think about something different because, uh, that's what she loved. You know, she, she really enjoyed being able to, to pass on things, um, from her own struggles and have it be a help to other people. So thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.